We got the report from Jeff Pass, and we knew that the show was coming. And if you watched it last night, it was terrific. Mike Greenberg and company did an amazing job with this. And they basically had all the commissioners on of the major sports, some athletes, and it was a two-hour special, Sports Center special, about the return of sports. Now, in that famous game, which one of these things is not like the other, which commissioner was interviewed that doesn't have a sport returning right now? Oh, that would be you, Rob Manfred. Rob, what are your concerns for the optics of this circumstance playing out as publicly as they are during the time in this country where all the other things, the confluence of events involving the pandemic and protests in the streets and everything else, of this playing out as publicly as it is? It's just a disaster for our game. Um, absolutely no question about it. Um, it. It shouldn't be happening. Um, and it's important that we find a way to get past it and get the game back on the field for the benefit of our fans. This is the same man who Wednesday of last week said 100% unequivocally there will be baseball. Said the same thing in late March when the pandemic was just settling in and the reality of being without sports for weeks at a time was starting to hit us. Baseball will be back. Said it four days ago. Kim Pagula three weeks ago. Jason Bottrell's my GM. Kim Pagula today is not my GM. So life changes things, move on. It's always, it is our intention, right? Rob Manfred didn't do that. Rob Manfred didn't say, it is with every fiber in my being, we intend to play Major League Baseball. God willing, right? Those You always put those precursors on things, right? No, he said unequivocally 100% there'll be baseball. And here we are five days later, yesterday, six days now. And Manfred's backing off. And the first thing out of his mouth, the commissioner of baseball, the face of the game, the steward of the game, says it's a disaster. Now, we had Jared Diamond on this show yesterday from the Wall Street Journal, our good friend Syracuse grad, covers Major League Baseball. And this was before Manfred... We knew about that statement. We heard that statement in pass and started to report it out yesterday. But Jared told us on the show yesterday, you can listen to it on our podcast if Paulie got to it after his you know seven-hour birthday dinner yesterday. What Jared told us was, they're not even talking right now. Okay, this is not a case where Manfred and Tony Clark of the Players Union and anybody else that needs to be on these calls are just, that's it, doing eight, nine, 10, 11 hours a day of negotiating on Zoom calls, on conference calls, being in the same room, socially distanced. And they, they're just trying to hash it out. They're going back and forth and they're close. They're not even talking right now. Do you even care about baseball? Do you even like baseball? Do you even give a rip that your sport exists We have discussed the lost opportunity for baseball because what they are going after now are the fans that care. You've lost the fringe fans. You've lost a younger generation that would be interested in your sport if you were the only sport out there for the entire month of July, if you were the great American game coming back to take us to normalcy in a summer where there's nothing happening, everything's canceled, and life is just dull as we know it, certain Business are, are reopening and, and life is getting back to normal is a word I hesitate to use, but somewhat normal. We've got 22 states across the country where coronavirus cases are spiking, but you know, that's a whole different topic for a different day. And it's not just because they're testing more. It's because people are idiots, but a whole different thing. 
Point being, baseball. Baseball could be the sport that could lead us out of this. Instead, baseball is sharpening the sword it will fall on. And it is taking direct aim at the fans that care, the fans that are left, the anchors of your game, the fans that will always be there. You're starting to piss them off. You're starting to turn them off. Then where do you go? There's reports out there today, a few different baseball insiders reporting, that there's up to eight owners that just want to shut it down, hit the reset button, and use this as an opportunity to just wipe the slate clean. I can't even begin to express, these are smart people. These are billionaires, right? The old billionaires fighting millionaires. Like, I just go back to that great line from Ghostbusters. That's your whole plan, huh, Ray? Get her. That's your whole plan. Really, this is your plan, baseball. In a pandemic, in a time of social unrest, in a time where 40 million people are out of work, your plan is to shut down. Your plan is to just let it die. Your plan is just that. Let's just let it fizzle out and reconstruct it later. It's the old, if a tree falls in a forest thing, doesn't make a sound. And technically the answer to that is no, because in order for a sound to register, there has to be something that gives the sound and something that receives the sound. So I saw that old uh, thing for you. Just think about it for a second. Nothing can make a sound unless the sound wave reaches something. If technically nobody is around or nothing is around, trees don't have ears, then it doesn't make a sound. But anyway, I'm confusing you. Rob Manfred has got to get his house in order. Rob Manfred has got to have a moment here. As Jeff Passan describes here, I thought this was really interesting. Maybe we just needed to kind of get it all out there. Manfred The biggest job a commissioner has is to be a punching bag, is to be the face of the owners. There's a reason the owners shove these guys out there and say, take the punches for us, right? So if we've done that, then Manfred has got to think about being the steward of the game, of being the man that has to bring the sport forward. Oddly enough, I believe this leaves baseball in a better place than it was going into yesterday. And I think it's because of Rob Manfred's words in totality. Let's look at all of the different things he said. Number one, he acknowledged that Major League Baseball is ready to pay players their full prorated salary. They have not gone there in terms of their offers at the point. I think even more than that, he went and said three different times that the owners want players back on the field. If that is true, Major League Baseball is in a position to make it happen. And after Rob Manfred's interview last night, Greeny, I spoke with sources all around baseball, and each of them agreed that Major League Baseball does not want to pursue litigation. They do not want a grievance setting that would come with implementing a season, which means they are open for a negotiated settlement. And in the end, I think that this thing actually is going to get done and that there is going to be baseball back on the field. Well, one of the things that you heard him say there was the clock is ticking, which clearly it has been for a while. So That is Mike Greenberg with Jeff Passan this morning on ESPN's Get Up show. So what Passan says actually makes a lot of sense there. Get it out there. Put the deadline there. You've been called out. Like, the players smell phony. Max Scherzer was tweeting last night, Trevor Bauer, who tweets a lot but has a lot of insight into these types of things, was tweeting last night and said, look, 
we see your hand. We know what you're doing. You're stalling. They don't respect Rob Manfred, nor do they fear Rob Manfred. It is time for Manfred to do what a commissioner can do. This is not entirely on the owners. It is not entirely on Manfred. But you know what? The players are winning the PR game because the message from the players right now, tell us where, tell us when, and we will play. Now, they're saying that also with with just 100% of our prorated salary, please. They're not making any concessions here, which I don't blame them for in the sense that in late March when they signed the collective bargaining agreement, that's what it said, and the owners came back and said, well, we're not going to have any fans in the stands this year, so we can't really pay you that. We can pay you that for 50 games, but that's about it. To which the players responded, you're full of crap. We know you could pay us a prorated salary for this many games. Oh, by the way, that's what you collectively bargained three months ago. Sorry it happened before a pandemic, but that's a you problem. What Rob Manford can do is order the players on the field. It is now entirely on him. Rob, it's time to do it. It's time to do what you can do and what you're basically saying is happening. It's time to stop pointing fingers, making excuses. It's time to actually talk to Tony Clark. It's actually time to talk to the players Fire up the Zoom if you don't know how to do it. I'm sure one of your grandkids can do it for you. And get on the damn field and save your game. And it is time for Rob Manfred to do something that every commissioner has had to do at some point. Every commissioner, remember, works for the owners. He is their mouthpiece. He is their figurehead. And sometimes he is their punching bag. But every owner at some point has had to take command of their game for the betterment of the game. And it is time for Manfred to do that. It's time for Manfred to call these owners, especially these owners reportedly that just want to let this thing fade out, and say, it's time to put our game on the field. It is time for you to step up. This is what I need from you, and I need it yesterday. Save your game. Step up. Get out there. To watch those other commissioners last night, look, when you make Gary Bettman look like a competent commissioner— when I yearn for the days of Bud Selig, you hear commissioners uh, describing how their sports are coming back. And, yeah, there's a lot to weave around here. There's a whole pandemic thing going on. And there are, oh, by the way, how about Major League Baseball letting that slip last night that several players have tested positive for COVID-19? Convenient timing on that story getting out there, which is otherwise private information in some cases, right? They didn't name any specific players. They just said players have tested positive. Well, it's convenient that that story got out there yesterday. That's inevitable. People are going to test positive in these sports. It's figuring out a way to isolate them, to get around it, to test, 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 identify them before it becomes a big problem. And that is a risky game that we're playing in the sports world here, particularly in college sports when you're going to bring all these athletes back and You can't keep them isolated from the general population of the school when school resumes in a few months, but that's life itself, too, as restaurants reopen and life reopens and you hope people do the right thing. That's just kind of at a point we're at here. Rob Manfred, it's time to save baseball. It's time to show that you can save baseball. It's time to put your big boy pants on and do what commissioners do. Because believe it or not, there are still people out there that care about your game. And the last thing you want is people that are passive about the return of baseball. We're not there yet, but 
you're kind of looking over the horizon at that, Rob. You are looking over the horizon at people that could give a you-know-what about baseball coming back. Right now, you have people like me that care. You have a fan base that wants your sport back. In sports, you do not want a passive audience. You want a passionate audience. Sometimes that passion is positive. Sometimes that passion is negative. But you want passion out of your fan base. What you do not want, what is a death blow, is a passive one that is beyond the point of caring. That's what you're teetering on right now. Save your game. In a world of make-believe sports and nostalgia that has been big, things come along that really make you wax poetic about things in sports. And maybe you remember them greater than they were, right? The old fish tale. I caught a fish this big. And every time you tell the story, your hands get a little wider. But this is not one of those stories in which it gets bigger or better with time. It was that good then, it's that good now, and he deserves to be honored. Deserves is a strong word in a case like this, but I will use it. And what I mean is Dwight Freeney. Today we learned that Dwight Freeney is a first-time-on-the-ballot candidate for the College Football Hall of Fame. Marvin Harrison, by the way, got on that list for a third time. To me, he's a College Football Hall of Famer. He left Syracuse as the all-time leading receiver. He was one of the best special teams players in college football. What you do in the NFL doesn't necessarily mean you're a college football Hall of Famer, but it certainly doesn't hurt that Marvin Harrison went on to be one of the most productive receivers in the history of the National Football League. So he's just kind of waiting his turn, and that's what you have to do in these things sometimes. The list is very long. There's a lot of amazing college football players that got on the ballot this year or have been on the ballot the past couple of years. But a couple of things. Quick side note. Boy, we don't care about the College Football Hall of Fame as much as we do other Hall of Fames, right? It's one of those, hey, that's a thing. And unfortunately, it was in the news recently because it got looted in Atlanta. The College Football Hall of Fame, I've not been, but I've talked to plenty of people that have. Is it terrific? They just redid it recently as well. By the way, sign of a good Hall of Fame, the gift shop. I'm serious about that. I went to the Pro Football Hall of Fame first time. Oh, it! I can't believe this is 20 years ago. It was 20 years ago. I am getting old. Man, I took my daughter to high school today for the first time. She had to do some things, pick up some stuff. I'm like, wait, you're in high school now? When the hell did this happen? And I'm thinking of my trip to the Pro Football Hall of Fame because it was 20 years ago when I was dating my now beautiful bride. We were dating. When this happened, good God, I'm old. Anyway, so, yes, uh, very romantic date, by the way. We went to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But, no, we were visiting my sister at the time. She lived in Cleveland, so we took a little road trip, went down to the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and uh, it it was disappointing. The bust room was cool. The Pro Football Hall of Fame then, I hope it's better now, when I went to the Bills Titans Hall of Fame game in 2009. I actually did not go to the Hall of Fame a second time around. I went to a lot of Hall of Fame events on induction weekend, including uh, this side note when I went to a after party. I'm going to sound like a big timer here. Trust me. I'm there in a Bills t-shirt and shorts. I somehow finagled my way into the after parties after the inductions, thanks to my good friend Mark Kelso, who was the Buffalo Bills color analyst at the time. Quick side note story. I'm standing in a after party. Everyone else is wearing tuxedos, by the way. I'm in a t-shirt and shorts. That was awkward. But 
talking to Rich Eisen of the NFL Network, just chit-chatting, great dude. And I'm like, man, these guys, they sound like the Temptations. And Rich takes a sip of his drink and he looks at me and says, they are the Temptations. The Temptations, the actual Temptations playing at Bruce Smith's after party, Ralph Wilson's after party. This is the year Ralph Wilson and Bruce Smith got in to the Hall of Fame. It's the biggest tent I've ever seen in my life. It was literally Bill's heaven. Every person on planet Earth that had anything to do with the Bills, that was there. And that's a whole different story for a different day. I'm sorry, I'm getting sidetracked. But anyway, Hall of Fame sucks. But you know what was great at the Pro Football Hall of Fame? The gift shop. The gift shop was money. Okay, anyway, back to the College Football Hall of Fame discussion, how this all started. We don't really care about the College Football Hall of Fame. We don't argue about the College Football Hall of Fame like we do the Baseball Hall of Fame, even the Pro Football Hall of Fame, other halls of fame. Like, they're just, they kind of exist. But this is my point in this whole rambling take. Dwight Franey is a no-doubt-about-it, first-ballot, don't-think-about-it-just-do-it College Football Hall of Famer. Dwight Franey was a game-changer. Dwight Franey was somebody who not only impacted Syracuse and what he did here and the type of player he was. 17 and a half sacks in 2001, 50 and a half tackles for a loss in his career. Remember that game sacked some dude named Michael Vick four and a half times. Now they lost that game because Michael Vick did break free and went about 60 yards that way and left Syracuse in the dust. But for the most part, Freeney beat the crap out of him all day. That was in 2000. Dwight Freeney's 2001 season is one of the greatest individual seasons I have ever seen in any sport, let alone football. That team won 10 games because of him. And to say that a team won 10 games because of a defensive player, the impact that he made, think about it. He had 17 and a half sacks through double teams consistently. Dwight Freeney changed college football, he was that good. He rewrote the record books. He rewrote strategy in terms of like literally how college football defensive ends play the game. He was a game-breaking player. He was somebody... Hall of Famers are not just recognized for racking up numbers, for being great players, although those things are certainly in the conversation. There is a category for game-changers. There is a category of people that come along that said, boy... Not only was he a great player, they changed the position. And it pisses me off to this day, I'm serious about this, that Dwight Franey was not invited to New York to go to the Heisman Trophy ceremony. I'm not saying he should have won the Heisman in 2001, but he should have been there. He should have been there. I remember Syracuse had, I think it was at a basketball game or something, my memory starts to get foggy after a while, but I remember they had a little kind of press thing with Freeney. I'm pretty sure it was during halftime of a basketball game. And I just remember looking at Dwight Freeney and saying specifically, what are you doing here? Like he, because it was around, it was either the day of or around the day of the actual Heisman ceremony. By the way, do you even remember who won the Heisman in 2001? Don't Google it. I'm going to read you a list of players. Because Freeney actually got votes that year, as he should have. But without Googling it, without looking it up, do you even remember who won the Heisman in 2001, which is only going to strengthen my case? 
that Franey, if there was going to be a year that an impactful defensive player should have won the thing. I've got, I am a Heisman voter, by the way, but I have my issues with the Heisman Trophy. Specifically that it does not go to the best college football player in the United States. Usually it goes to the best quarterback, running back, or receiver in the United States. Defensive players have to go out of their way and have such an extraordinary season statistically and otherwise to even be considered for it. Which Franey did that year. Okay, do you remember who won the Heisman in 2001? I know you cheated and looked it up, but for those that didn't, Eric Crouch of Nebraska. Eric freaking Crouch. Yeah, Eric Crouch. Rex Grossman finished second, who had a terrific season at Florida, by the way. 34 touchdowns, 12 interceptions, 3,896 yards. Eric Crouch won the Heisman because he was a terrific rushing quarterback. That's it. He rushed for over 1,000 yards in that old Nebraska option. Why Eric Crouch won the Heisman that year? Did just bothers me to no end. But it went Crouch, Rex Grossman, Ken Dorsey, who was a terrific college quarterback. Joey Harrington was fourth that year. Was that the year or was it 2002? There was that one year when, remember Oregon put the the big ad in Times Square for Joey Harrington? I th- it had to be that year, right? 2001. Anyway, David Carr for Fresno State. Antoine Randall-L, who was at Indiana at the time. Roy Williams of Oklahoma. So a defensive player that actually finished ahead of Freeney in the voting. Bryant McKinney, who faced off with Freeney a couple of times, old Big East. And let's not get into how much Bryant McKinney held Dwight Freeney in their matchup that season. A game that... Miami won, if memory recalls, 59 nothing. Yeah. Wasn't that the game day game? It was either 2000 or 2001. College game day, not here in Syracuse because they've never been here, but college game day was at that one. That was a big hyped matchup between two top 10 teams. It had to be 2001, right? And Miami destroyed Syracuse. But Bryant McKinney held Dwight Freeney all day. Don't get me going on that. But McKinney actually finished ahead of them in the Heisman voting, and there is Freeney at ninth. Now, again, not saying Freeney should have won the thing, but he should have been in the room. You know who was in the room? Five quarterbacks. Crouch, Grossman, Dorsey, Harrington, Carr. It is not a representation of the best college football player in the United States when it's one position. Freeney that year, I can, and a lot of you listening to this watched it, you know I'm preaching to the choir. He was so dominant. He was so groundbreaking. He almost deserved his own award. This is when I really earned a passion for giving defensive players more props than they were getting. And they have their own awards. It's not like they were left out in the cold. And guys came along, I mean, Charles Woodson a few years before that, and and Dalman can sue. But so many defensive players just get left in the dust. Freeney did everything he had to. 10-win football team, 17 and a half sacks, which then was an NCAA record. He was dominant. Remember that Auburn game in 2001? We all remember it, certainly because it was the first game in the Dome after 9-11. But poor Jason Campbell that day had to walk out of that Dome traumatized because Freeney just chased his butt around the Dome all day. 
So for this to come around, and again, what you do with the National Football League isn't always represent a representation of what you should be as a college football Hall of Famer. But all Franey did in the NFL was continue to build on that legacy, become what is surely going to be a Hall of Fame defensive end, and carved out a legacy. So you know what? I don't even know what the parameters are. I think you have to be out of college football or out of the game for 10 years or whatever the case. Just stop right now, put Freeney's name on the actual list of players going. I don't think they even announce this. The College Football Hall of Fame ballot process is weird. Like, this is the ballot for 2021. They don't even announce it until, I think, January of 2021. It's the way they do this. It's so convoluted. It's just... which is probably part of the problem, by the way. But you know what? I got the email today. We wrote a story about it on Syracuse.com, SU Athletics. Everybody put out. It's like, okay, great. Don't even need to see the numbers. Don't even need to see the case. He's first ballot Hall of Famer. I don't have a lot of first ballot Hall of Famer takes when it comes to the college football Hall of Fame, but I do today because Dwight Freeney better get in first ballot. You're not going to snub that guy again, are you, after not even putting him in the room at the Heisman ceremony in 2001? And again, I hesitate to use this word in sports, but he deserved to be there. He was one of the most dominant college football players I've ever seen, let alone that year when Eric Crouch won the Heisman. Eric Crouch. You think if Freeney was in the Big 12 and played Eric Crouch, he wouldn't have sacked his butt three times, four times? like he did Michael Vick, please. Put him in. Don't think about it. Don't overthink it. Don't even look at the numbers. Dwight Freeney is a game-changing first ballot Hall of Famer. Now, as for Marvin Harrison, the reason he... I mean, he had to wait a couple years to get in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, too. But the case for Harrison is, look, he left Syracuse as the all-time leading receiver. That number, by the way, wasn't even eclipsed until recently, and Steve Ishmael had to do it in the last game of the season. There's the old myth of run, run, pass, punt under Paul Pascalone. It wasn't really a myth, by the way. But the fact that Marvin Harrison was a game-breaking wide receiver who only played with McNabb for a couple seasons, right? There were quarterbacks before that. That was not a, a, a McNabb to Harrison thing for four years, and that's why he has the numbers that he does. But it's not just that. He was one of the best punt returners, kick returners, first-team All-Big East special teams, so the fact that he's been sitting around for a couple of years, I kind of shoulder shrug emoji that too because he was one of the better all-around talents in college football in two out. I bet you if you put him at cornerback, he would have been pretty good too. By the way, we got to retire these numbers too. It's a little awkward with Marvin Harrison because as we know, there's some off-the-field things there that uh, a little dicey, a little dicey. But Freeney's 54, Harrison's 8, they're next. You know how I feel about this. Syracuse University, and I will point to other organi- organizations, as they say in hockey, but the Syracuse Crunch do not do this enough. The Syracuse Mets do not do this enough. Syracuse University does not do this enough. And anybody else you want to put in line here, and that is honor your history by not retiring jerseys, honoring jerseys. You can retire jerseys. That's a special thing, but there's not enough of them in the Dome. The slow, methodical pace they go at, in honoring football jerseys befuddles me. When there is a list of players, Dwight Freeney included, Marvin Harrison included, John Flannery included, they got to 
finally, Joe Morris a couple years ago, after taking their sweet time with that. There's a list of basketball players, 10, 15, 20 strong that should be up there that are not. Now, why not? The number five should be retired twice because Marvin Graves deserves that recognition. Honor your history. Tell your story. Put the numbers up. So that reminds of other college football numbers that need to be honored. If you don't want to retire them, that's fine. And, of course, that brings me to my rant, too, and I understand this is priority has fallen down the list given the way of the world the past few months, but I've been assured on this radio show and behind the scenes from other people, but assured on the air on this show by John Wildhack that they're going to retire female jerseys at Syracuse University, female athletes being honored. And in the Dome, even though some of them probably didn't even play in the Dome, but that's your central place. That's the highest visibility there of where the athletes have played. They haven't retired enough lacrosse jerseys either. Like, maybe I make this sound more complicated than it is, but to me, this isn't complicated. Honor your history. Put up the jersey. Do it. But to go back to the original intent of this conversation that the Pro Football Hall of Fame gift shop kicks ass. No, I'm kidding. Even though it does. Dwight Franey, first ballot Hall of Famer. Don't overthink this. There's a lot of great names on that list, but he was a game changer. 